Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 6th, 2019. On this week's episode, we are going to touch on a lot of storylines that's surrounding the Chicago White Sox. In particular, the shuffle between Chicago and Charlotte with Carlos Rodon's pending injury diagnosis. The White Sox need help with starting pitchers, and because the starting pitching hasn't been all that good, it's wearing out the bullpen, which appears to be already tired. Oh, and did I mention that the White Sox have only played 32 games this season and have another 130 games left to go? How can Rick Hahn get a handle on this? Well, we'll brainstorm some ideas and share some thoughts with you about their current situation. And after their nine-game homestand, which the White Sox went 5-4, and four, they are 14-18 and 18 overall in 2019. And now they head to Cleveland for a four-game series. We'll preview that series, update you what's happening down in the minor leagues as Luis Robert is adjusting nicely to double-A life, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Join us first on the show is the Chicago White Sox beat reporter for The Athletic, who is here to update us on the latest from the clubhouse. He's a good friend of the show. It's James Fegan. And hello, James. Thanks for taking the time to come back on the show. Yeah, I mean, I was able to squeeze some time in between more guys getting options, so that's nice. <laughs> right. Well, I want to start on a positive note because that was my goal this year. That was one of my New Year's resolutions, be more positive. And you wrote an excellent piece about Tim Anderson's journey for The Athletic. And he just won the American League Player of the Month honors for April, which is a big deal. And it's really astonishing when we read your piece to see the development and how Anderson almost quit baseball. 
And as I was reading your story, just really you know, hit the home uh, point home, just how incredible of a leap he's made from playing junior college to today being the American League Player of the Month. In your opinion, is this Anderson's pinnacle in his baseball ability, or do you think he has another level that he could reach? Uh, I think it's a reasonable expectation for his pinnacle. I definitely think, like when I was talking to scouts maybe two, three years ago about what is, or when, you know, even when he was just kind of making his debut about what his like peak would be, they thought like you know his best year would be the year he made the All Star team, and that kind of seems like what we're trending towards. This year is that, you know, he has a really hot first half and he, you know, launches himself in the national conversation and that kind of, you know, can propel him to even in a very tough class in the American League shortstop-wise that might maybe make the all-star team this year. That was kind of supposed to be his peak. He wasn't supposed to be a perennial guy. He's supposed to be a solid 2 the 3 win player for, for years on end at a very difficult position to find that, and, and that was what you were supposed to expect. At the same time, I'm not going to say Tim Anderson will never get better than this. Uh, Tim Anderson has showed a tremendous, tremendous level of uh, you know work ethic and makeup and the ability to kind of make big leaps in certain skills over the course of a half season. And you know if he ever kind of even added simply regular below average walks as a stable part of his on base profile, and you know the errors kind of went down consistently over the course of a year in the way we saw them in the second half, but maybe haven't seen so far this year. Yeah, there, there maybe is a better season or two uh, in his profile. I mean, he's just kind of a very super athletic guy, so there's always a very high ceiling if there's any kind of a level of adjustment with his approach or uh, you know precision on things. But I think th- this would be reasonable for him to be um, this would be his best season. I don't think if the rebuild broke right, which obviously is no longer a scenario we're dealing with in reality, but if the <laughs> rebuild broke right, you know, he's probably not your best player on the team at any point in time which, you know, you can make an argument that he is right now. And as I fulfilled my New Year's resolution duties, uh, (laughs) unfortunately, there's not a lot of positive to take away from this weekend. And I think it starts with the news of Carlos Rodon. There is obviously the short-term impact with him being on the injured list, but there is this growing long-term impact until we know for sure what the second opinion recommends for Carlos Rodon. And if that second opinion is he needs Tommy John surgery, uh, James, what is that long-term impact for the Chicago White Sox? Well, I mean, this entire season is all about, you know, I mean, the most exciting thing rotation-wise, you could be a, there's some people who are really high on Ronaldo Lopez, but, you know, one of the most fulfilling conversations to have for rotation-wise was to figure out if Carlos Rodon is that top of the rotation dude or even a middle of the rotation dude, or just you know a rotation dude in general, long term. And instead, you kind of got you know seven starts into figuring that out. And you could probably argue that the last two were physically compromised in some way. So that kind of punts that question. And if he misses the season uh, to the Tommy John, and, and you know, frankly, even if you know he rehabs. You're talking about what? What's like the most idealistic scenario, which is him missing like say two months, and then rehabbing and maybe able to make you know six to eight weeks of starts at the end. That would be absolutely dream scenario, and you'd have no idea how much to really wait as far as how good of a player he is. But if he misses the season with Tommy John and misses most of next year, you're dealing with maybe a year and a half before he hits free agency, and you know. 
hopefully maybe there, there's a you know contention at the back end of that but as far as time to really obsess assess you know what Rodon is and what he can be and whether or not he's a long-term option or somebody you want to like try to resign you know as unrealistic as extension has always seemed to be it just seems like your kind of window to really assess him uh is gone and with that being gone for the short term Manny Benuelos obviously got lit up. Dylan Covey pitched well, but maybe both of these guys should never face a lineup a third time to the order. However, because of the injuries and because of the lack of quality, are these the White Sox number four, number five starters for the foreseeable future, James? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think, I don't know if it was you or someone else tweeted out like what the Charlotte rotation that isn't Dylan Cease is Yeah, doing. it's not pretty. But uh, yeah, any kind of like expectation that Jordan Stevens is going to bump up and provide depth or, you know, way back when, when we had more uh, optimism for Spencer Adams, uh, you know, before the league went dinger crazy and even the idea of a, you know, mediocre stuff guy who throws tons of strikes didn't seem like the worst idea possible. I feel like their profile has like suffered a big hit in the last year and a half, you know, and now Ivan Nova is the guy carrying that torch in the major league rotation. But yeah, uh, I, I don't see anything that really pushed them out. Uh, you know, even I, I, there's nothing really that's swayed on the idea that Dylan Cease isn't going to be like I think at best would be someone who comes up in the second half. Maybe it's earlier, uh, you know, late July if everything goes right. But uh, it doesn't seem like you're going to accelerate that. Even if you're a hardcore uh, Jimmy Lambert stand, which I am, even that would, isn't mm-hmm. something that would come until the second half. So yeah, you, you're looking at two months of, of those guys filling out. Like someone today was tweeting at me like, man, it, I like Kobe more than Nova. You know, uh, I feel like there's more on tap ceiling there. I'd rather see what he can do than more Nova. And I was like, you you go, you don't get the pick either or <laughs> you got to hope that the both, <laughs> both of them can hold up and you don't need someone else to kind of fill the void at some point. So yeah, uh, it, it reminds me of uh, some point in 2014 when I realized that like Andre Rienzo kind of needed to make 20 more starts because there's no one left depth-wise. Comparing it to that, it seems a little bit more optimistic, but yeah, they've really reached, they've already essentially lost two starters um, probably for the season and some months in. So definitely going to the bone as far as depth-wise. Andre Rienzo reference. Man, we haven't talked about him since the first season we did this podcast. So (laughs) it's been a while since I've heard that name. What's he up to? I don't even know. Does he even play professional baseball anymore? I think he was with Padres in spring training like last season, but I don't know what it's up to now. Huh. I'll have to look that one up. Uh, you do know, and you may be the only one know, because you're the only one that I think is reporting on John Jay as he goes on the 60-day injured list. Uh, it sounds like with Rick Conn that there's optimism that maybe with him going to extended spring training that he could possibly be assigned to uh, rehab as far as stints in the minor leagues, depending on what level that the White Sox want him to play games in. I have a growing fear that this reminds me of Austin Jackson in 2016. Even though we got to see Austin Jackson actually play games for the White Sox, he went down with an injury and then we never saw him again. Uh, with Jay, we obviously haven't seen him yet, and there is optimism that we will see him at some point. Uh, but, you know, what will the White Sox do with Jay? And if he is not healthy and he can't get healthy, how does it impact the outfield configuration for the 2019 season? Well, I mean, 
I think like with Jackson, there was like at least like the con- like the concrete thing of like he tore a meniscus and something. You know, something he had to recover from. With Jay, it's always just been mysterious kind of soreness, and it hasn't really come with like a hard you know uh, you know diagnosis. So it's always been a, a kind of a us feeling out how he sounds and how close he sounds, and you know definitely when he talked to us at Chase Field like right before the season started. We really got the vibe of, oh, this guy's really not super close. He's definitely starting the season on the injured list. It's probably going to rehab stint. But even then, it just seemed like something that would go away in a matter of weeks. And now we have basically baked in with the 60-day IL designation that he's going to miss two months of the season, which, you know, would be a crazy thing to hear when Rick Renneri was talking about him playing in B games and getting, you know, up to speed back at the, you know, the final weeks of, of spring training. So it's already a pretty severe situation. Han said he's going to, uh, you know, basically spend uh, 10 days to two weeks uh, in extended spring training. And then, you know, assuming everything went well, he would go into uh, a rehab stint with an affiliate after that. So it makes it seem like that May 27th date where he comes eligible, you know, it's, it's not like he's going to be raring and chopping to go and ready to go two days before that. They have to be patient. It sounds like that's not even like it would probably extend beyond that when he's really ready. Um, you know, I guess a positive thing out of this is kind of, you know, they said when Ryan Cordell came up for the second time that they were giving him right field and they were just going to see what happens. If you were really interested in that project, it seems like that's going to go, you know, unbothered for the time being. And with Angle going down and, you know, Eloy coming back relatively soon, it sounds like, you eventually just go into an outfield configuration of Larry Green, the everyday center fielder for the time being, Ryan Cordell continuing to get regular at-bats in right field and Eloy in left, and you're really just worried about your utility man after that. And I think at this rate, when Jay returns, if he returns, you probably have a very firm idea of whether or not Ryan Cordell is you know worth pursuing uh, on that level uh, continue to give every day or he's you know his hit tool is kind of uh showing his shortcomings and you're you're ready to abandon the plan and go back to playing john jay on a regular basis but as far as like a dream of john jay being probably a mid-season trade asset which probably seemed like the best best ad- outcome you know just lining him up with what he did for the royals last year uh, when he was signed mm-hmm. that seems like it's a little bit out the window so. now sticking with the outfielders Adam Engel was sent down to Charlotte and Renteria says that he wants him to be a 250 batting average, 330 on base type of hitter. So James, is this the end of Adam Engel's saga in Chicago? Well, yeah. So that got a really negative reaction. I mean, but at the same time, like, yeah, I also want Adam Engel to be a 250, 330 OBP because that would be an awesome player. And, you know, I, I definitely, Renteria, like we stopped recording and walk away and Renneria almost like almost to like kind of reiterate the fact to us uh, said and I love that kid about Angle and you know everyone knows that Renneria uh, loves that guy I mean Angle is an absolute like back of the draft guy who couldn't even didn't even put up like great hitting numbers in college and ground, ground his way to the major leagues after five seasons and absolutely runs as hard as he possibly can on every single play there's literally no manager in baseball who wouldn't be like overly fond of him. That's like manager catnip to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
it seems a little harmless to me to have Renneria setting those expectations for him on the day that he's optioned. I mean, one thing if like Angle's hitting 180 and he's starting him over over more qualified players and he's saying, I expect him to be 250, 330, and we are like, well, what are you doing? What are you looking at? He's not doing that. They're sending him out. They're, they're optioning the AAA, and you know, basically the entire year they've just been mostly playing him as a fourth outfielder defensive replacement. So it it seems like there's a level of reality uh, with the way they're dealing with Adam Engel um, that I I think people have probably been calling for for some time. Um, I don't think that's really realistic expectations for him. I feel like the role that he was in this season, where he was primarily defensive replacement and you know the occasional starter against lefties, was probably the ideal major league role if he is uh, ideal in a major league roster. But yeah, with Charlie Tilson having a hot start with Joel Booker kind of reaching his point in his uh, trajectory, given the crowded outfield behind him of he's going to probably get a shot at some point late this year or he's not ever going to get one because there's going to be a huge glut coming soon. With Luis Robert finally healthy and finally making the Miners look as kind of uh, underqualified against them as I kind of expected, given the level of professional success he already had in, in Cuba, yeah, this would probably seem like the window finally closing on Angle a little bit. Now, same with the outfield, Eloy Jimenez. Is he close to rejoining the team? Is the ankle injury not as severe as when it was reported to be a high ankle sprain? I mean, yeah, from every indication, it seems like he has been, hasn't really been seen in the walking boot since maybe the day or two after the injury. He's been kind of uh, moving around a lot more. He's been hitting the cage. He's going to Cleveland. Uh They've they've kind of signaled that this is something where we can expect him to uh, return. I wouldn't say this week, but it sounds like there could be a rehab stint, and probably you know, given the fact that he hasn't been out very long, one of those very brief two to three game rehab stints uh, at the end of this coming week, um, which is great. Not because it necessarily means that Eloy is going to come off and come back to being the three fifty guy with power that he was in AAA like we've been waiting him to be, but it, you know, it lends a degree of purpose to left field as far as just, you know, this is supposed to be a season for him ironing out the kinks and, and figuring out what he's going to be and, you know, figuring out if he's going to be a left fielder for one thing. And the sooner they can get back to the process, the lot more there's going to be a purpose to 2019 uh, as opposed to, you know, I, I never really thought that this is going to be a year where they were going to contend or, uh, you know, kind of be threatening at the mm-hmm. periphery of the second wild card. But you definitely want it to be a year that has a lot of purpose. And right now, I probably can't find that in the rotation very much. I'd at least want it to find it in left field with your you know, Uber prospect. And you can follow James on Twitter. He's at J.R. Fegan. And as always, read his excellent work on The Athletic. I highly recommend picking, picking up a subscription. If you don't have one, they have deals all of the time that you could take advantage of to sign up. So again, definitely subscribe to The Athletic so you could read James' excellent work covering the Chicago White Sox. And James, as always, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. All right, thanks for having me. Now joining me on the Sox Machine podcast is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Where shall we start sorting out this mess from this weekend? 
Do we have to? <laughs> Not really. Let's see how long we can last without talking about the White Sox-Red Sox games. Uh, because there's, yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot of news here. And we touched on many of these talking points with James Fegan. But I wanted to get your thoughts as well because I know you wrote about Carlos Rodon's injury and the long-term impact. And I asked James what that long-term impact would be. And, you know, he just mentioned that you're not going to know if he's a dude. You don't know if he's going to be an ace. You don't know if he's going to be a mid-rotation guy. You don't even know if he's going to be a back-in-rotation guy if he needs Tommy John surgery because he's going to miss probably the first half of 2020. Who knows what's going to happen in 2021 with the league and the union on how many games are going to be played with a potential player strike. It just seems like this is the nail in the coffin possibly for the White Sox and Carlos Rodon on ever figuring out what he could be for them and what his true potential was as they spent the third pick in the draft back in 2014. Uh, what are your thoughts about the possible long-term impact of Carlos Rodon's injury if we do hear that the second opinion recommends Tommy John surgery? It does seem like it's not worth thinking about him too much. I, I don't think, I guess I put him in the same category as Nate Jones. Like even though he's younger than Nate Jones, Jones is just somebody who had so much injury trauma, um, you know, back and forearm and elbow and just various kinds of surgeries. And I think that does take a toll on the guy. And I think Rodon is approaching that same thing with the shoulder surgery, with the elbow surgery, with the wrist injury, just, you know, every year is a different injury. And it just seems like it's, uh, you know, maybe his style of pitching is hard to maintain, or maybe the White Sox never quite figured out how to set him up for success with his uh, really heavy slider approach. But, um, you know, given how little he figures to make and how the upside is still there, it seems like it's probably worth keeping him in mind for fifth starter role. You know, like, you know, if he's healthy, you know, he'll probably be the best you know, one of the five best starters the White Sox have, but better have a sixth starter in mind, better have even a seventh starter in mind if he's one of your top five just because he's going to miss so much time. But yeah, I think when it comes to anybody you can plan around, anybody who can take opening day starts, I think uh, this is basically it. And that's a bit sad. Yeah. Because I remember being incredibly excited about the potential for Carlos Herdon and dreaming of a playoff series of Chris Sale, Jose Quintana, and Rodon, and how that would give the White Sox an advantage in a five-game series. And I still believed in him because we have seen greatness. We've seen great starts from him where we want to buy into the fact that, yeah, if you have one game and you got to beat the Indians and they're having Corey Kluber on the mound, you want Carlos Rodon on the mound for you. And as you mentioned with the injury trauma, yeah, it's the left shoulder. Now it's the left elbow. And, you know, for Carlos Rodon's future in the major leagues, and I think that this does have a long-term impact, man, I wonder if he's the next Brett Anderson, someone that teams still think highly of, and they give him multiple and multiple chances to become that starting pitcher, Jim. But because of the injuries just keep recurring that you can never trust them to last an entire season. And it really impacts on how long they stay in the major leagues. Yeah. I think Brett Anderson's maybe a good uh, comp in terms of future. I think also teams might experiment with him in the bullpen. You know, should he prove time and time again that he uh, can't stand up to even like 25 starts in the season, much less 32. 
I, I don't know if that's going to help. I, you know, relievers get Tommy John surgery, relievers get hurt. We've seen it with the White Sox. So I don't think it's a guarantee or even maybe even a good bet that he would stay any healthier in a relief role going max effort uh, two, three times a week versus, you know, one to two times of, of carefully managed effort a week. And that may make no difference when it comes to his health. So, uh, but yeah, given that the, the power of his slider still and his effectiveness against lefties and uh just the i guess the regard he has around the league like when he was drafted the white Sox, um you know they got a steal at number three everybody considered it because the uh indians and the uh uh and no not the indians the uh marlins and astros yeah marlins and astros i was thinking like a good team <laughs> the indians is the astros and marlins both went cheap uh, or, or tried to kind of spread the cost around and, and you know, didn't work for them with high school pitchers. And so Rodon seemed like it fell into their laps. And uh, they loved his attitude. Uh, scouts did. They liked, the, you know, as you mentioned, they thought he was a uh, top of the rotation mentality, if not maybe the ability to execute his pitches with number one regularity. Um, and yeah, it would just be a shame. But it's uh, it, it certainly seems that way just based on, you know, it should be Tommy John surgery. It should be the worst case scenario. And based on how he was talking about it, it seems like they've, you know, with, with Han and Rodan's comments, both seem like they're preparing for it and maybe even mentally they're already there. Now for the White Sox in the short term, I'm calling this the Charlotte Shuffle, Jim. We are seeing multiple players all over the weekend and probably maybe even going into this week. Going from Charlotte or Norfolk, where they are playing against the Norfolk Tide this weekend, flying to Chicago... And in the case of Caleb Frere, come in, face one batter, and fly back to join the AAA team. And we talked about this very topic a couple weeks ago when Rick Renteria was speaking about accountability. And at the time, I wondered if they were going to use demotions as a form of punishment for poor play. Well, because of the injuries and ineffectiveness, the White Sox are now using this Charlotte shuffle uh, as a way to continue to have fresh arms in the bullpen. We'll talk about Adam Engel in a second because that's a different aspect. Um, but starting with the pitchers, Jim, how long can they operate like this with the bullpen and starting rotation? They've only played 32 games. They got to find a way to get through 130 more games in the season, Jim. Can they continue doing that, shuffling pitchers back and forth from AAA? <laughs> well, I mean, they, they kind of have to. They're, they're mandated to play these games. <laughs> so I think... Uh... Yeah, yeah, there's no talent really coming elsewhere, which is a scary thing. Maybe like Jimmy Lambert, if if he's able to go to Charlotte and succeed, maybe he and Dylan Cease come up and that's how it stabilizes, or at least, you know, the White Sox get five decent innings more regularly from a couple of rotation spots where they're not getting it. Uh, and then maybe like Dylan Covey can go to the bullpen and, and Banuelos maybe can go to the bullpen or, you know, kind of bounce between spot starts where they're better equipped than holding down any kind of starting job with regularity. Um, but until they're ready, until there's like another starter um, who comes up from the internal ranks or unless they can somehow swing a trade for somebody who's out of space or, you know, somehow pull some kind of weird magic trick with an extra veteran starter who becomes available on waivers or something. Um, it seems like they have to, I mean, you know, Dylan Covey was not there plan a or plan like he's maybe plan d at best for the rotation and a month into the season he's already here and there's nobody knocking on the door i mean dylan cease has been 
good in Charlotte, but also has only topped out at 90 pitches so far. It seems like they're really easing him into the season with the mm-hmm. idea of having him pitch through September, but that also means that they're managing their work, his workload now, and he's not exactly ready to help a rotation that's uh, that's drowning. So that doesn't seem like a great time there. So until like he's ready, and until like guys like Lopez and uh, Giolito and, and yeah, God willing, Nova uh, show up and actually deliver those starts where they are going six innings with regularity. Uh, it seems like they'll just have to keep doing this until uh, either like Cease or Lambert or whoever comes up or the season's over. The White Sox starting rotation is Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, Ivan Nova, Manny Benuelos, and Dylan Covey. I feel like this is one of the worst starting rotations that I've witnessed since early 2000s, late 1990s. It would be, yeah, the, the the kids can play, you know, before Baldwin established himself and before well, Sirac- Parquet and Soraka. Yeah. yeah, like bef- Not- before they were there and he had Navarro and... 98? Uh, Is 98 the worst? Probably, yeah. It's been a long time. And for those that support us on Patreon, you could hear James Vegan's response when a fan asked him about the future of the White Sox pitching as far as with the rebuild and does that hinge on it. Uh, But just, I mean, looking at Charlotte, I posted this picture today on Twitter. Outside of Dylan Cease, the starters have an ERA that starts with an 8, Jim. Yeah. What happened? Well, I think the ball is doing weird things. I know the ball's doing weird yeah. things, having an opportunity to go there and talk to the guys. But there's when you look at you look at the run scoring environment in Charlotte is nuts on both sides. It is. But they're gonna be pitching with the same ball in the major leagues. Yeah. No, I think some of it's yeah, some of it's like, you know, uh just hopelessness, part of it's weirdness, and I'm not sure what the balance is, but yeah, it's not it doesn't bode well and yeah, I think maybe if you call up Jordan Stevens, I don't. I think he would probably post a lower ERA in the majors than Charlotte, but not by much to matter. Right. And I know Don Cooper is an old dog that just is seems to be stubborn and does not want to learn new tricks. But I don't know how they can handle this in a creative manner. It's almost like they need. My recommendation would be: you have three pitchers today. They're going to throw three innings. And they have to throw three innings because you got, you don't have another off day until what is that? May 15th. Yeah. In between it's in your homestand, two games against Cleveland and then four games against Toronto. You got to get through this seven game gauntlet on the road. That's why Carson Fulmer is so disappointing. Cause that was kind of what point. he was supposed to do. I mean, especially the, the outing, uh, against Boston, where he comes in after Manny Banuelos, you know, just implodes, and there's no pressure. Like the others, just you know, basically just even though Banuelos three strikes and he paid, just like you can't count on him. You know, uh, them hitting, you know, going ten for ten with regularity against strikes, no matter how they're thrown. But just you know, throw strikes. You know, you let them put the ball in play. You don't have to throw like great innings or efficient innings. You can throw twenty pitches an inning and. You know, throw 60 over three and you'll still have helped out the team a lot. Even if you give up three or four runs along the way, there's like the margin of what could be considered a success and a help is, or, or I should say the barrier for that is so low and he couldn't even meet it. 
you know, I think that's really what's, uh, you know, one of the, the hard things to watch about this particular uh, composition of the bullpen is like, this would be perfect for a Carson Fulmer. Like, even if he was never going to be more than like a, a long reliever, a multi-inning reliever who can handle maybe, uh, you know, fifth and sixth innings of competitive games by himself and, and just kind of make a mess of it, but also, you know, power through it, you know, if he can't do that, if it, uh, that would have been like the the best way to help, and if he can't do it, it's just uh, you know I'm not sure what there is, and I think they'll keep you know calling him up and down. I think he'll be part of the shuffle, just because it is his fourth and final option year, and they just have to see if there's anything there, if there's anything they can do to salvage it before they you know go into spring training and and potentially try to sneak him through waivers and see what happens. But I think this is going to be year for him to fail, <laughs> and uh, he may fail a lot like this. This may be his last season with the White Sox. Yeah. Two top 10 picks from the 2014 and 2015 drafts. And the White Sox may not get anywhere close to what they were envisioning when they made those picks for Carlos Rodon and Carson Fulmer. That's a gut punch, man. That is a gut punch. Speaking of gut punches for the player, maybe not so much for the fan base, but Adam Engel was option to Charlotte. I asked James Fegan about Adam Engel. Is this the last that we're going to see him? He says probably. What do you think, Jim? I would say no, but just because the way, the way they surface over and over again, uh, the White Sox really don't churn through it. Like I thought Ryan Cordell was pretty much done. Now he's a big uh, part of it, Trace Thompson left and came back. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's true. like they're just you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, like Dylan Covey back at the rotation. Just they can't get away from what didn't work before because of so much that doesn't work in between. So that's why it's hard for me to say about any White Sox that has spent any meaningful amount of time on the roster that, yeah, he could come back. There's, you know, the White Sox will never uh, turn over the roster so much to make it um, you know, preventable. And also if he goes to 26 man and they really like his defense, maybe they call him up to be speed and defense off the bench and maybe that's his future. But, uh, yeah, it just, um, yeah, I, I laughed at the, the quote that James relayed on, on Twitter from Renteria about how they want to see him become a, uh, uh, 250 hitter with a 330 OBP. And it's just like, yeah, if he could have done that, they would have done that two years ago because he would have been valuable now. Like, uh, you know, that's not a reason to send them, send them down now. It's just a reason to say like, well, we're not going to have the leads to protect in uh, the late innings, which is really the best use for him. And we don't want him hitting before then. So let's try Charlie Tilson. And it's really, it's kind of like with Dylan Covey. Like they said, they wanted to stretch him out and they didn't really have a plan for him. I don't think they really have a plan with angle. Just more of a matter of uh, there's, the last ditch attempt to get him regular playing time that might actually help him is not in Chicago anymore. Do they even trust themselves in developing Adam Engel to be the type of player they want him to be? Well, you know, the thing with Engel and I, and I think it's, uh, you know, he's a 19th round draft pick and the fact that he got to the majors and has been replacement level, you know, cause his defense uh, overshadowing his offense, but like by and large, he's been roughly replacement level. That's not, terrible for a 19th rounder even though he's paid more than he's paid about 10th round money but even then like that's a pretty good return on that kind of player i just think that they just gave him like if he showed up for half a season played good defense and then went back down to charlotte and kind of bounced back and forth based on need or injuries 
you know, you would think like, oh, that's kind of neat that we got an extra guy, you know, that, that late in the draft. But when he's the starting center fielder and gets nearly uh, 900 plate appearances and, you know, is one of the worst hitters in baseball over that time and they have no alternates, I think that's what makes the disappointment so resounding. Like, you know, so, so that's why I think that I try not to be too hard on him just because he came from, you know, nothing, relatively speaking, in terms of the draft and, you know, became a major leaguer for a couple of years. That's not bad for him, but it's just more, you know, and, and so the White Sox, you know, their, their inability to find somebody to replace him until Leary stayed healthy. Um, I think that just kind of spills over and then the resentment hits the player and it probably shouldn't just because of, you know, what he's been able to do from where he came from. I know a lot of people listen to this show on their way to work on Monday and I don't mean to make you guys sad as you pull into the parking lot or you step into the office and go to your day jobs, but it's quite possible that Adam Engel was a better draft pick than Carson Fulmer. Hmm. Or at least they got more out of their 19th round pick than their first round yeah, pick. Yeah, I got more. I would say, like, yeah. If they drafted Adam Engel in the first round. No, yeah, that would have been, you know, they, <laughs> been terrible. There would have been, yeah, no, uh, yeah, because some of it with, with Fulmer is, is uh, you know, he was a first round talent. Like everybody thought that. Right. Uh, so just like, yeah. So they had, yeah, with hindsight, it looks bad, but just like, yeah, with, at least they have that going for them that they did make a fairly consensus pick. And aside from Walker Bueller, not, nobody really overshadowed him in the first round. I don't think. Right. Dylan Tate and Tyler J were drafted before Carson Fulmer. And I don't think either of those guys have reached the majors and they may yeah, not Cap- reach the majors. Yeah. Caprillion hasn't stayed healthy. Harrison, you know, didn't make the majors. I don't think from what I can remember from all those college pitchers. So, right. So there's something to think about. I don't even want to pull up baseball reference and compare but maybe the White Sox got more out of their 19th round pick from Louisville out of Engel than they did with the seventh pick overall from Vanderbilt, Carson Fulmer. Oh boy. All right, let's go to another depressing topic. Let's talk about Rick Renteria and his weekend. I don't think this was a good weekend for Rick Renteria, Jim, both decision-making and sound bites. Now, the sound bite that, I'm going, uh, that I would like to bring up is him not knowing what the record was when the media asked him that you're a game below 500. Are you looking forward to getting back up to 500 and him saying that he doesn't look at it. He doesn't care. It's all about the process. And if you follow a good process, the results will come with it. I have a meatball opinion about this. I know it's a meatball opinion, but I wanted to know of your thoughts of whether you care if the manager of the white Sox knows or cares what the record is at that given moment. Uh, I'm going to be charitable and think that he was trying to express standard athlete boilerplate mentality. uh, And he did so inelegantly. Like I imagine that he knows what the record is and, uh, you know, follows the standings and such. I think what he is trying to say is like that he doesn't want to make a, big deal of it even if it gets to 500 or dips below or whatever like you know i guess the the various ups and downs that this team will have i think he's you know my read on that quote was that he was trying to say like uh, no matter where we are it's more about how we get there versus you know what the standings say so that, that was my guess and i just thought it was poorly stated kind of like trying to uh you know say adam angle needs to hit 250 with a 330 <laughs> on base percentage just like things you can't you know, uh 
Yeah, things you say because you don't really have anything to say. Yeah. My meatball opinion is this. If you want to be about the process and you want to be about the development of players and making sure that they feel good about their play, that's great. Go manage Birmingham or Charlotte. In Chicago, in the majors, it's all about winning. And I'm sorry, I'd like the major league managers, when asked, how do you feel where you are in the standings, to actually know what their record is. Like, that's your job. That's the only thing you could be held accountable to is wins and losses. And if you don't care what the record is, who does? Nobody. <laughs> well, clearly. Well, I mean, that's right it. now in this season. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Well, it's uh, no, it's, you know, we were having a conversation on Twitter. Uh, a few of us talking about rentery and uh, it's this is, you know, this is the part of the rebuild where most managers get fired. Uh, just because Good they point. run out of things to say, uh, you know, the losing happens. They, they're not responsible for the losing by and large. It's just more a matter of just having untalented rosters for so long and wearing on players and, you know, whether they're being too passive and, and, and forming bad habits or whether they're being too, uh, too big of hard asses and are, are driving players nuts. This is usually where it ends and another manager, comes in and, and picks up the colors and runs with them for a bit and before he gets cut down. But, uh, you know, the White Sox not, you know, extending him and sticking with him. You know, that's, uh, and he's got basically, he, he has a Charlotte, he has a 4A roster. Like, you know, it's kind of developmental. It's not wins and losses. If it's hard for me to get all that mad about Renteria, not, you know, saying, you know, that I guess that he doesn't know the record or that, you know, he's not focusing on wins and losses so much as process when the front office doesn't give him a roster that wins. Like, they're, they're, you know, when the front office care doesn't care about winning immediately, and I think that was part of the problem with Renteria last year with these benchings, is that he's trying to coax extra wins out of a team that can't do it. And so he benches, you know, guys for not hustling who always hustle or, you know, for, who don't hustle for reasonable excuses you know he, he, he got a little bit too punitive because he didn't know what else to do <laughs> now i think he's maybe trying a different tack and that doesn't work either but nothing really works when you don't have a roster that can do it and you have to answer about why it hasn't done it or why it can't do it or will it be able to do it time and time again you know it's this is usually why managers you know hit their end of the road at this point and apparently he's gonna be hanging around for a while so i guess we're gonna have to get used to this I guess it's just for me, it's a mentality thing. If you want to be successful in the major leagues, I think it's got to be all about the wins and losses. At times, Renteria feels like too much of a mentor. And I know that every team needs that. Those are your bench coaches. Those are your base coaches. Uh, again, those are your guys managing double A and triple A. But I think when it's time to flip the switch, and the White Sox want to start be a competitive team and contending for a division or the postseason. Uh, now I don't think Renteri is the guy. Yeah. I mean, like Ron Washington was kind of that way in Texas. And yeah, he was immensely popular, uh, even though he was a bad tactician and kind of weird. And uh, yeah, but whatever reason, like he just connected really well. And maybe Renteri connects really well. Like it's hard to tell. He's just never had a good roster, no matter where he's been. Uh, he's been in that kind of caretaker role, or at least trying to shield young players from being like, especially this roster. Like when you have all these, the, these players going up and down, he's trying to, you know, 
by appearing in a major league game, these players are going to be put in a position to fail, which I think is really the manager's biggest concern is, you know, for what he can do with his roster is just not putting guys in positions where they're unqualified to be. And I think by virtue, this is just going to happen a lot. And I think he's trying to mitigate that uh, the best he can, because that's really, you know, that's kind of probably, you know, not if, if you caught him in an honest moment, yeah, or, or had a kind of a deep diving conversation about everything, you know, maybe that's where he would say, like, that's the hardest thing to do, you know, based on what I've seen other managers talk about, uh, is just having a player uh, fail in the majors because nobody was better to do it at the time. And I think he's just really, I'm, I'm guessing he's kind of conscious about that and is trying his hardest. But when you have so much of the roster that is not getting, it, when you have the veterans not getting it done and or, or like the second and third year guys not getting it done, then it falls to the Caleb Frears of the world and, and Manny Banuelos and these guys are just kind of trying to get any kind of footing. I imagine that's just got to be terrible for him. So I guess I'm more sympathetic than you are. I guess, yeah. I just don't know what Manny Banuelos learns from getting lit up and then afterwards hold maybe not tipping his pitches if that's that was what he thought might have been the case sure and then pitching jose rendon yeah that was weird that that i did not care for that was one thing where i thought it well it was like robin ventura when he jumped the shark with pitching position players by having two of them appear in a september game this kind of felt like the same thing like this is not fun i mean it's Mildly amusing, but also kind of professionally embarrassing. Right. And that, maybe that's it. Maybe we are walking down the path of Robin Ventura again with Rick Renteria. The difference is that Rick Renteria does it with a smile. And it's not one of those things. I forgot. I think you mentioned what he always starts with as far as his quotes, what his shtick is. It's just one of those things where. Yeah. Well, that's Robin Ventura. What's Renteria's? Uh, Honestly or quite honestly. Oh yeah, quite honestly. That's it. And he'll, he'll he'll deliver just kind of a fact or some kind of perspective, but like it, may, it makes it sound like he's really leveling with you. And then, quite honestly, I just think Engel uh, wasn't gonna get a bats here. <laughs> right. And then you have Rick Hahn, who answers your question by repurposing the question, and then answers that repurposed question with the possibility. If that. If that. If you're lucky. Uh, yeah, I just yeah, I just think Renteria is he's he's better than Robin Ventura. I think if you put him on a different roster, like the fact that he hasn't, uh, hasn't had any of the clubhouse turn on him, I think speaks well to him. Cause he, he hasn't been a pushover. He's benched guys. He's made mm-hmm. an example of Good players. And, and so I think that, you know, there is something to his communication skills and his reputation. Um, and if you put him on a different roster, he might be, I, I think he's better than replacement level, but I think the, the, the swath of average managers is so wide as to be like mostly meaningless. I think a lot of them are interchangeable. And then you have some really good ones. You have some really awful ones and the rest are more born from their, the situations that they inherit. Like even Mike Matheny was acceptable for a couple of years. And I think like Renteria is a better manager than Matheny. If you put Renteria in St. Louis, you wouldn't notice him or you'd think great things about him, but yeah, just the case where uh, the White Sox are giving him nothing and he's got nothing. He has to explain why the nothing he has to work with is doing nothing. All right. I'm, I guess I will leave 10% and I'm not fully 100% committed now that Rick Renteria needs to go, but I'm not very confident in his ability when it's time for the White Sox to flip that switch when they're done rebuilding and they're supposed to be a contender 
that he's the right guy for the job. And I just think it's his mentality to the game that he's better suited in another role. Well, I will surprise you later. All right. So we did it, Jim. Uh, Looking at the time, uh, we didn't talk about any of the games between the White Sox and Red Sox. We talked around them. Uh, And then other than Nicky Delmonico's walk-off home run, uh, I don't really care. Do you? Not really. All right. So there we go. The White Sox lost three out of four to Boston, and they are 14 and 18 on the season. I am sorry if you wanted us to deep dive into the Red Sox-White Sox series, but we really don't want to, and I'm sure you guys don't want to either. Before we preview the Chicago White Sox-Cleveland Indians series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. The ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time. There are a bunch of big companies who've been around forever, but don't really care about making the experience easier for the customer. Well, SeatGeek is a ticket company where the customer comes first. With more than 50,000 five-star reviews in the App Store, SeatGeek is focused on making your experience as easy as possible. Here's how it works. SeatGeek pulls in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each deal on a scale of 1 to 10, and they display them on an interactive seat map. So it's simple to find what you're looking for. The green dots are great deals. The red dots stay away. Those tickets are overpriced. Plus, you can get an opportunity to see what the view looks like from each of the seats, especially if it's a new stadium that you've never visited before. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence, which is great as more and more stadiums go paperless with their tickets. I use the SeatGeek app all the time on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I found to shop for tickets. In fact, I just use SeatGeek to buy tickets when the White Sox come back home for their next weekend series against the Toronto Blue Jays. I bought eight tickets off SeatGeek. So it's great for buying one ticket just for yourself or you're going with a big group of friends or family. Uh, Buying up to 10 tickets at a time on SeatGeek works great for both types of transactions. Plus, if you want to find some great deals the next time the White Sox are home, which is next week against the Indians and the Blue Jays, SeatGeek has great deals right now. Tickets as low as $8 or even $10 for the weekend series against the Blue Jays. So there's some great deals right now. And the best part is that Sox Machine listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. As SeatGeek supports the show, so hopefully you will support them as well. You can use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase. You can use that not just for White Sox tickets, but you can use that for concert tickets, other sporting events, comedy shows, whatever you need tickets for, you can use that promo code. So again, the promo code is SOXMACHINE for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. Now the Chicago White Sox head onto the road. After winning five out of nine games at home, they will have the next seven games against the Cleveland Indians and the Toronto Blue Jays. And the first series on the road is against Cleveland. Cleveland is now 18 and 14 on the season after they got crushed by Seattle 10 to nothing on Sunday. They are two and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins. Defensively, as far as run prevention, they are the Indians. They are only allowing 3.9 runs per game. Offensively, even with Francisco Lindor back in the lineup, they are still struggling to score runs. They are only averaging 3.7 runs per game. They're 18 and 14, as I mentioned. Their expected win loss record based on the Pythag and run differential, they should be 15 and 17. So, right now, the Indians are overachieving by three games. This is a team that should be below 500 right now, not four games above 500. So, it'll be interesting to see how this series plays out between the White Sox and the Indians, as the Indians are not 
hitting on all cylinders still. And your probable pitchers for this series are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. These are 5, 10 p.m. Central Time games. Monday, not a good game for the White Sox. It'll be Trevor Bauer on the mound for the Indians against Ivan Nova. On Tuesday, we'll see Lucas Giolito again against Jeffrey Rodriguez for the Indians. Wednesday, it is Ronaldo Lopez against Shane Bieber, and Shane Bieber's been pitching really well as of late. And on Thursday, this is a 12-10 p.m. Central Time game. It's getaway day for the White Sox. It's to be determined, maybe Dylan Covey, against Carlos Carrasco. Last time the White Sox visit Cleveland this season, Jim, they split a two-game series. Do you think they can split this series again? Maybe. <laughs> it was just bull. Uh, I, I, Nova Bauer, I think you could just throw that one out. Uh, but Giolito and Lopez, um, pitching better, feeling okay about their stuff. I think Cleveland's offense is is that bad. Like it's, I think their OPS is like 100-plus points worse than the White Sox, and the White Sox offense isn't great. Um, but they're somehow like 100 points worse than that. And I think if Giolito and Lopez pitch like they have, they could win, you know, a three to two game, a four to three game. Um, so I, I think that's why I feel better about it than normal. Um, you know, maybe in in a month, if the Indian, if like Jose Ramirez comes all the way back and 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 they find some replenishments elsewhere, then maybe it's a different story. But right now, I think they're kind of kind of softer or a little bit easier for the picking. Yeah, we'll see. I mean. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, if you remember those games in Cleveland, they got out of hand after the sixth inning. And if the White Sox could stay close to the sixth inning, I think that's when chaos will reign. The seventh, eighth, and ninth innings are going to be absolutely... It'll be like they're playing different games within the game in those last three innings in the first six. They just got to stay within striking range if they're playing you know, the Monday's game against Trevor Bauer and Wednesday's game against Shane Bieber. If they could do that, if they could steal one of those games, then yeah, I'm confident that they can split the series. And then we feel a little bit better about the White Sox as they head north of the border to Toronto. But there's also a part of me that wonders what has transpired this home this weekend against the Red Sox carries over to Cleveland. And this is an ugly series where they lose three out of four. They even get swept, Jim. You know, it's it's possible. Like I don't give them <laughs> yeah, I guess my maybe was like better than I thought. Cause I yeah based on the way they showed up against the Red Sox and how I don't think much of their chances against better teams, like the way this happens to break down is they might have a better chance. But yeah, based on the way they're they're going and uh, the way they collapsed in multiple fronts, uh, especially the defense, you had some really bad moments and you kind of want Yonder Alonso to be the full-time first baseman at this point while he's on the roster. Uh, Yeah, it's... It's hard to count on them, but I just think the Indians are in a really weird spot themselves. And uh, yeah, Carrasco having such an awful start. Uh, I guess I would feel better about the series if Nova weren't the opening pitcher. It's really hard to go, you know, after a series of short starts and Dylan Covey doing what he could, but also being limited, then to go to Nova, who just might have to eat it (laughs) this time around if he gets lit up. And if the Indians light him up, that's major issues for him. Right. Well, we'll be recapping as far as that series and Sox Machine Live on Thursday, so you can look forward to that. But coming up next, Jim catches you up on the action down in the minor leagues, next on the Sox Machine Podcast. Welcome to the Minor League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where it's still impossible to tell how good the hitters are and how bad the pitchers are. 
The Knights have the worst ERA at 6.40, and they've given up 63 more hits than the next closest International League team. They also have the league's most potent offense, scoring 25 more runs than the next closest team. That leads to questions like wondering if Dylan Cease's 3.33 ERA is great, even if he struggled with efficiency at times and hasn't yet topped 90 pitches in the start. Similarly, as Jordan Stevens and his 9.48 ERA is awful as it looks when we have last year's track record saying he shouldn't nearly be this bad. The same can be applied to the offense. Charlie Tilson's batting 333, but Ryan Cordell and Nicky Delmonico had OPSs over 900 when they were called up, and they've scuffled with the Sox. The same thing can be said for Daniel Palka, who has four homers and 12 walks in 14 games, or Zach Collins, who is slugging 613 but has struck out 31 times in 22 games. Things aren't nearly as explosive in Birmingham, although Luis Robert is busting out. After being held hitless in 10 at-bats during his first three games, he's come up with seven hits over his last two, including three doubles on Sunday. Luis Basabe went 4-for-24 four in his first seven games back with the Barons, but the hand injury gives him an excuse. Blake Rutherford and Gavin Sheets are both hitting under 200 as well, but they don't have a broken bone to point to. And just when it looked like Luis Gonzalez was going to separate himself from the rest of the pack, he's gone 1-for-17 to knock his average back down to 204. The Barons pitching staff received the services of Alec Hansen, who was making his return to AA. He allowed just one hit while striking out 21 over 12 and two-thirds innings with the dash, although he issued clumps of walks in his last two outings. He's joining Zach Birdie, who gave up three runs and four hits in his second outing with the Barons on Saturday. Down in Winston-Salem, Nick Madrigal seems like he's on cruise control, with hits in nine of his last ten games, and five walks to one strikeout over that time. He's good for a hit a game and a double every other one. Steel Walker is just three for 16 since his promotion, but two of those hits are doubles, and he's got three walks to one strikeout. Of the pitchers, Blake Battenfield is the only one standing out, as he's thrown four consecutive quality starts while allowing a total of four earned runs, which has lowered his ERA to 2.83. He's 24 and has only struck out 25 batters over 35 innings, but that's still good enough to make him the top dash starter. Lincoln Hensman battled a tweaked hamstring early, and I hope that's the reason why he only has four strikeouts over his first 12 innings. Kannapolis is where the age-appropriate excitement is, at least as long as Bryce Bush is hitting. He's been on a tear in his last 12 games, which is when the White Sox moved him off third base where he was a disaster. He's hitting 395 with a 509 OBP and 651 slugging over this stretch with 8 walks and 12 strikeouts, and he swiped 3 bags as well. He's getting regular playing time in right field. He just needs a running mate. Luis Curbelo, Amado Nunez, and Lennon Sosa are all hitting under 200. The Intimidators did get some reinforcements in the form of Corey Zangari and Romy Gonzalez. Both are 22, and both are off to strong starts in their first week, with OPSs around 1,000. Connor Pilkington won the White Sox Pitcher of the Month award, but Jonathan Stever is closing in on him. After a few wobbly outings to start his season, Stever has tossed three consecutive strong starts, racking up 23 strikeouts to just two walks over 19 innings and allowing just five runs. The fifth-round pick had more success than any other pitcher among the 2018 draft picks last year, and it looks like he's back on track. That'll do it for the minor league report. Now we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Socks Machine, and helping support the show 
and the website by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash socks machine. And of course, reconvening with Jim, who will be answering your questions this week out of the mailbag. And the first question that we've got comes from Johan Dabrinsky, Jim. And Johan is asking, assuming we could find another starting pitcher, do you think Manny Benuelos and Dylan Covey tandem would be effective? This is assuming each would be available for relief work in the middle of their turn. I'd rather see them used as the second pitchers behind openers. And I, and I think uh, this Boston series showed the value of openers, especially when you have the top of the order uh, with the Red Sox. Um, like Dylan Covey throwing four and two-thirds innings, that was um, you know good for him. Like that, that exceeded my expectations a little bit. Uh, but it only didn't get them even through five. And so you have a bunch of innings for Rick Renteria to try to cover with the bullpen. Whereas, you know, like, and this might not have worked out this way, but say if you can somehow get the, you know, get a reliever, especially an opposite handed reliever, maybe Aaron Bummer or something like that to throw a first inning, get Ben and uh, well, it wasn't bets, but you know, maybe bets you know, in a different Day or J.D. Martinez, try to get them out of the way in the first inning, scoreless, to get the game to Covey in the second inning. And all of a sudden, if he can go for two-thirds innings, maybe five innings, because he doesn't have to face uh, you know, uh, Benintendi and Betts and uh, Martinez three t- twice, he only, you know, under that thing, you'd only have to face him twice, not three times. You know, Maybe he goes five, maybe he gets the game through six, and all of a sudden you have your high-leverage guys lined up. Uh, that's what I would like to see more of. And I don't know if, you know, the White Sox are equipped to do that mentally. I don't think, I think Don Cooper's mainly rejected it out of hand. Uh, but when you have like Ban Wales, you know, I, I think they're kind of cut from the same cloth. They throw a lot of uh, their main pitch the first time through, and then they kind of run out of options when it comes to the third time through. You know, set them up with an opposite handed opener and maybe you can get those, you know, four to five inning outings maybe all of a sudden it's gets the late innings before you even know it as you know as opposed to if they're starting uh they run out of steam in the fifth and all of a sudden you have to get these uh low leverage relievers trying to get high leverage outs in the sixth and seventh Johan, thank you so much for your question our next question is one of our patreon supporters this comes from jerry hilgenberg and uh jerry writes to us carolina Sox fan I am wondering if it isn't time for a complete organizational evaluation of how pitcher and conditioning and strength program and mechanics are being taught. Not long ago, a guy like Matt Thornton, who came to the White Sox unable to find home plate with a searchlight, was quickly turned around. Now we don't seem to have anybody out there who can reliably throw good strikes. And with Birdie, Kopech, Dunning, and now possibly Rodon going down for Tommy John surgery, it seems like there is ample justification for system-wide overhaul. Your thoughts? Yes. Thanks for the question, Jerry. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. No, it, it makes good points. That, yeah, I would say with Thornton that, yeah, I guess as recently as Tommy Canley and Anthony Swarzak were Thornton-like stories, just without Thornton-like longevity in the White Sox. But, um, yeah, they've been more exceptions and, uh, driveline baseball has posted this study about what teams get from their player development. And the White Sox were, uh, the bottom and equally terrible at both position players and pitchers. Like, especially I think the last five years, I think the time frame was where they've gotten nothing from their development on pitching sides. And yeah, it does seem like there's something there and you're kind of going through the options, you know, talking about the baseball. I, I think that 
hurt them a little bit. Uh, you know, going to a baseball that really hurt curveball pitchers, especially, I guess, you know, ones who weren't used to it. Like Lucas Giolito, he was a curveball pitcher. All of a sudden, couldn't throw it. Ronaldo Lopez had to change his breaking ball. Carson Fulmer, his curveball that he had in Vanderbilt never showed up at the White Sox. And, you know, so I wonder if that's the case to where all of a sudden some of these pitchers had to deal with secondary pitches that were not uh, their go-tos when their prospect stock was the highest. So there's that. Um, I also wonder, you know, when you think about Herm Schneider and the effect that he had in Don Cooper and, and you know, the, the health of their pitchers, you know, they mainly did that, you know, they earned their reputations in the 2000s and before the velocity boom and, you know, reading Jeff Passan's The Arm and, and reading about surgeries and such and, and hearing about Herm Schneider's shoulder strengthening program, uh, you know, that the, the studies have shown that shoulder surgeries have dropped, but el elbow surgeries have, you know, risen, especially as pitchers throw harder and harder. The elbow is, uh, you know, has the most stress and doesn't go anywhere else. And I just wonder if that's something that, that you know, the White Sox were not prepared for was the velocity boom and not in exactly knowing what their training program does for their pitchers who are, you know, instead of throwing 92, 93 are throwing 96, 97, 98. You know, that's another thing that came to mind as to why something that worked before didn't work elsewhere. And then, you know, maybe it's, yeah, I shouldn't say maybe it's very much likely that they're behind analytically. Uh, and maybe just teams that are better equipped to find either bounce back candidates or diamonds in the rough or players who just need one tweak. You know, maybe they're getting outflanked by teams that have, you know, both scouts and good pitching coaches, but also technology and analytics, uh, you know, helping them identify these pitchers. Uh, yeah, I can see a whole bunch of cases that, you know, maybe make Don Cooper's uh, uh, powers not what they used to be. And, you know, usually you know, he's been around the White Sox for so long. Uh, I think what's 18th year as the White Sox pitching coach, that's way longer than most people do. And it shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be a failure if, like he needs to step down or they need to find somebody else. Like that's a great career for a pitching coach. Um, but you know, it seems like that's probably the furthest thing from their minds. It may be time. I mean, he is an old dog and I don't think he's going to learn new tricks. I think he's made it very clear. He's not someone that supports using the opener and this team right now, Jim, maybe that's the best way to go about it right now. That's the best way that they're built. Yeah, I mean, like the Rays and A's had similar rotation catastrophes with injuries, and the, that's how they got by, and the White Sox just need to get by. So they shouldn't be too good for anything, but for some reason they really believe in their pitching development still. And, and you know, there's really, like Chris Sale is probably, and Chris Sale and Jose Quintana were probably like the last pillars of their pitching approach, but I think Sale might have been kind of a double-edged sword and that he made it look so easy that I wonder if, the White Sox were not prepared for how hard it is to get a top, even a first round pick to, uh, to hit, um, you know, like, you know, with Rodon, they just called him up the same way and, you know, it kind of worked, but kind of didn't. And, and part of it, I think was Rodon not having a really good five day routine, which is something you usually figure out over years in the minors. Carson Fulmer, they kind of shoved him through, even though the numbers really showed it and, or it didn't show that it was warranted in the minors. And, uh, you know, he, he, they, they've kind of made all made a mess of that. And Tyler Danish, you know, he had the unorthodox delivery and uh, that was kind of exposed to higher levels. So I just wonder if like sale made it so easy for them that they uh, were kind of blindsided by when it became difficult. 
Well, Jerry, excellent question. Definitely something that needs to be thought about and and pay attention to because the White Sox now, I think they're shifting gears. On the pitching side, at least, it's less about development and right now more about survival. As we talked about earlier in the show, they got to find a way to get through the remaining 130 games right now. And it seems like it'll just be a tough test for them just to get through this week, especially the starting pitching does not get better. So, Jerry, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Spencer Roos, and Spencer's asking, pain rankings-wise, we've got to be close to the top as far as Major League Baseball franchises, right? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) When you look at, uh, I guess, success plus relevance um, plus excitement and watchability and such, like Marlins are below the White Sox. Like the Marlins basically had the White Sox fire sale, but without any kind of, uh, I guess, um, you know, real rationale for it, except for they had way too much debt. Um, and, and Derek, you know, the Derek Jeter ownership group wasn't really qualified to take over that much money. You know, that's kind of, that kind of sucks. Um, and, you know, Jeff, you know, a Jeffrey Loria team and, you know, getting, um, getting hosed on the public financing for the stadium, everything like there's nothing fun about being a Marlins fan at all. So there's that, but, Aside from the Marlins, like maybe the Cincinnati Reds might have the only other case for it, but that's about it, I think. Yeah, and it's kind of funny with the Marlins because now we're hearing out of Miami that Derek Jeter's unhappy with the attendance and play. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Really, Derek? Yep. You traded away a John a Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, and Marcel Azuna outfield. Yep. And you're complaining about your record. And because you went through this rebuild, because Major League Baseball approved a sale to you and your investors when you didn't have the money to actually afford the Miami Marlins, you're now complaining that the attendance isn't there because nobody in Miami wants to watch a terrible baseball team. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I think they're worse than you know, whatever fans they have have to feel it worse than the White Sox fans. The other one I thought of was the Mets, but I think the Mets are just very, Mets fans are very good about being loud about their misfortunes. Uh, If you put the White Sox misfortunes up against the Mets, I think the Sox might win, but yeah, I agree with that. But, but I think they're up there too, in terms of, because they, you know, their ownership is just like not worthy of the New York market and they have to deal with that. So that's an its own kind of issue. But yeah, I don't think it quite qualifies as the complete irrelevance that the White Sox have right now. If Jerry Reinsdorf does an interview where he att- like fan shames about attendance, attendance shaming, then I think the White Sox quickly reach to the Marlins level. Yeah, he doesn't really seem to talk about the team anymore. No, he's down in Springfield complaining to politicians that this new progressive income tax is going to hurt his ability to bring in free agents. (laughs) I wish I was making that up, but no, he brought Ozzie Guillen and Horace Grant with them to plea not to go with the new progressive income tax. Wow. That's what's on Jerry Reinsdorf's mind right now. An extra 3% that he would have to pay every year in income tax and how that impacts his ability to bring in free agents. What a guy. What a guy. But Spencer, thank you for reminding us about the pain rankings. Uh, The White Sox are number two behind Miami on our list. But thank you so much for your question. 
and excellent questions from everybody this week. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions to Biosox. I realized I realized that we left a. Uh, it's a good reason to support us on Patreon and get the Patreon episodes because I left a, a cliffhanger, and if you had the free episode, you'd not hear how the cliffhanger was resolved. <sighs> bum bum bum. <laughs> Yeah, so about that, uh, that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine <laughs> podcast. And if you would like to help support the show and the site, uh, again, you can go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up. There's additional content, uh, additional topics that I discussed with James Vegan that you'll be able to listen to. The additional P.O. Sox questions for Patreon are very good this week. Uh, so if you like what we do on Socks Machine, not just in the podcast, but also in the writing as well, as Jim did the month in a box uh, posts, and there'll be future posts as well that are just for our Patreon subscribers, uh, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up. We have 312 supporters, uh, which is very fitting for covering a Chicago baseball team. So thank you guys so much for your support. Uh, it goes a great way of helping create new content for you guys in various mediums. So again, thank you guys so much for your support. And for those that are on the fence, it'd be great that if you guys could support us as well. I'd like to thank James Fegan for coming on the show uh, from The Athletic. Again, go ahead and subscribe there as well. They do great work as always, especially for baseball. And if you love following uh, the trade wins with Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal being part of The Athletic, uh, if you want to know uh, the juicy gossip and the rumors, you're going to have to be on The Athletic uh, to read about those. And when you do sign up, you get James' excellent work as well covering the White Sox. But again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. You can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.